for the opportunity to come and share with you this evening. And first, let me say, um, you know, as you folks have had an opportunity to be here for a little while, we consider this a partnership in ministry. Um, our paths don't cross as often as we would like, and that's just the way schedules work out sometimes. But, but we're honored to be able to, uh, to do God's work together. Um, and so it is truly an honor to be able to share with you a little bit this evening. As Michael mentioned, we have been in the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been going through about a chapter a week. And so, as you can tell, um, we've been doing this for 17 weeks. I was counting earlier. I think we've got about 15 weeks to go. Um, and so it's been a long chapter that we've broken up with different kinds of things. I will try to bring you up to speed on stuff that uh, you may not know because you haven't been with the other 16 weeks. Um, so bear with me if I overlook some of that, but hopefully I can get you on the, on the same page. If you are a news person, and I'm not sure how many of you are, but um, as I think about weaknesses in my life, one of the weaknesses is I am a news junkie. I cannot get too much news. I love... Uh, to look at the news, not because most of the news is good, it's not, I'm just interested in it. And so uh, one of the things I noted last week, and some of you may have if you've got similar interest, is that there was, I think for the first time, a congressional subcommittee that met to talk about, of all topics, UFOs. Yep, UFOs. They don't call them UFOs anymore. They call them now UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. But they're the same things. Um, and if you can get past the little green men and the flying saucers pieces of it, uh, there really is apparently a legitimate concern or definitely a real concern that some people have that because of the number of sightings that have taken place, you've probably seen some of the footage on the news or other places of, of uh, military aircraft that have tracked these, there's some curiosity about one, uh, if these things exist, and that's a big if, if these things exist, um, are they friendly or hostile? And if they're hostile, are we ready for them? Um, now, there are some uh, individuals um, who actually gave some testimony uh, that say we've got some of these craft that have crashed. In fact, a significant number of them which causes me to believe that if this is real, if these craft really have crashed on Earth, that aliens must be the worst drivers in the universe, literally, because they keep crashing on our planet. And I'm not sure why that happens. But um, in any event, um, this group met to talk about um, how to be prepared for what is referred to as first contact. Now, as I said, they think we have some craft. They think we maybe even have some uh, aliens that perished in, in the crashes. But we've never met a live alien um, in person, I guess you would say. We haven't had what's, what's called first contact. Well, this evening, we are going to be talking about first contact, but not with aliens from outer space. Uh, we're going to be talking about first contact with the people of Israel, the, the Hebrews and the Israelites. I'll use those terms interchangeably. And the first contact that they had with a foreign nation or a foreign group of people who were called the Amalekites. The Amalekites. So we're going to be looking at our text today. It's going to be found in the book of Exodus, 17th chapter, verses 8 through 16. Um, Grab your Bible, use the Pew Bible in front of you, use your Bible app, um, or you can just follow along on the screen. But I always think it's a little better if you've got your own Bible to be able to, to track with those kinds of things. And as you're getting located in that, let me give you just a 
brief background to sort of catch up to where we're at in the story. Uh, the people of Israel had been in slavery for 400 years under Pharaoh. God heard their cry, and so he chose to use a man named Moses. Now, Moses had been sort of an adopted son of Pharaoh. Um, he got in some trouble with the law, and so he ended up having to flee to a place called Midian, where he served as a shepherd for 40 years. It was in Midian that God called him through a burning bush experience and wanted him to be a part of the, the, the mechanism to set God's people free. So Moses came back um, through a series of 10 different plagues, uh, convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go. As soon as they got out of town, Pharaoh said, whoop, I think I made a mistake on that one. And so he pursues them. They get to the Red Sea. Red Sea parts as Moses holds up his hands. The people of Israel get through. The Egyptians pursue them. At that point, Moses lowers his hands. The waters come crashing down. And the Egyptian army perishes. And so now the people of, of Egypt, or the people of uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews, are on the other side, and they're kind of moving into the wilderness. Now, this is pretty early on in the relationship between God's people and God, so they're really trying to get to a feel to understand just who this God is uh, that they've chosen to, to follow and, and, is, and is leading them there. And that brings us to our text for today. So let me just read verses 8 through 16 for you. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hand remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely brought out the name of Amalek. From under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because the hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Uh, as we kind of enter into the story here, um, we have a, kind of a battle that's broken out as the Amalekites have come and decided to, to do a war or battle against the Israelites here. And it's important, I think, to remember the circumstances. Uh, the Israelites had been in bondage for 400 years. At that time, all they did pretty much was make bricks in order to attend to the building projects of Pharaoh. So they were awesome brick builders, um, but they knew nothing about warfare, battle, armament, those kinds of things. They just didn't have any experience with that. And so as they get ready to go into battle, they realize, Moses realizes, I think God obviously realized, that they were at a severe disadvantage. And so God intervenes on behalf of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, by prompting Moses to go up on a hill where he could overlook this battle that was taking place. And Moses' job was to take a staff and to lift it up. Now, I just happened to bring my Moses staff with me. I noticed none of you brought your Moses staff, but that's okay. Um, I have mine, and as you can see, it's just a pretty ordinary piece of wood. Moses would stand like this, 
And when he did that, the people of Israel were winning the battle. When he got tired and lowered his arms, the people of Israel were losing. So arms up, winning, arms down, losing. And what he used was just a piece of wood. It was just a stick. There was nothing magical about it. It wasn't like a supersized Harry Potter, a kind of magic wand type of thing. It was just a piece of wood. In fact, may have been the very piece of wood that he used when he was still a shepherd there in Midian. And so he goes out and he goes up on this hill and uh, he gets some help um, from some individuals to assist him. And as we think about what unfolded there, one of the, the lessons I think we can draw from that is how God can use ordinary things in life to do extraordinary things. It was just a regular piece of wood. It was just a stick. And yet when God was connected with that, extraordinary things happened. Uh, this untrained people of God, the Israelites, were able to defeat a far more seasoned and equipped army with the Amalekites, which is a reminder to me, maybe to all of us, that, that God can take any ordinary thing or any ordinary person and use it in a way that brings about extraordinary results. And we see numerous examples of this in Scripture. So we see, for example... Uh, so we've got an example there of Samson. He took the jawbone of a donkey, if you remember the story, and he defeated really almost a small army of men with that. We have David with a sling and a rock, and he defeated Goliath. We have Elisha who took a, a small jar of oil that just seemed to never end in order to make provision for this widow and her family. And then we think of the story of Jesus with the little boy who had just a few loaves and fishes and with them fed more than 5,000 people. So for me, it's an encouraging thing to be reminded that God can take the extraordinary things of life and bring about extraordinary results from that. So again, we've got Moses there. He's up on the hill. He's lifting up the, the stick and he starts to get tired. And I don't know if you've ever had occasion to do this, but that comes more quickly than you realize. If you want to just do an experiment, um, go out sometime and take a glass of water or something and try holding that out. You'll be surprised at how quickly your arm starts to shake because it just gets tired. And that's what happened with Moses. Understandably, he began to get fatigued. And so his arms began to droop down. And when that happened, the Israelites began to lose the battle. And so Two individuals, Aaron and Hur, come and stand beside him. The text tells us one on one side, one on the other. So again, we need to get the image there. We have Aaron on one side, and we have Hur on the other. So we have a him and a her that are helping God out in this situation. Good reminder to us that God can use all kinds of people um, to bring about the results of the work of his kingdom. And so based on that, the text tells us that the Israelites emerged victorious in that situation, um, and God had uh, some lessons to teach them because we know that from what's told right after that in Scripture. Scripture says that God said to Moses, now take what you've just seen and write about it. And write about it. I think I've got a slide that says that very thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Now if you... To read through Exodus up to this point, one of the things you would note is that God hadn't said that anywhere else. This is the first time God says to write something down. He didn't say write about the 10 plagues. Those were pretty big news, but he didn't say to write about those. He didn't say to write about the parting of the Red Sea. That would have been a sight to see, but he didn't say anything about that. He says write about this particular event, which to me means that there's some lessons that we can draw from this. So what are those lessons. Well, I think there's three that we can take away, at least three that I'd suggest that you consider. Uh, 
The first one of those lessons is this truth, that as we think about life and the battles that we encounter, and we all do, don't we? We all have challenges, we all have difficulties, we all have struggles uh, that we run into. Maybe they're in the workplace, maybe they're with home life, maybe it's with your neighbor, um, maybe it's with siblings. I don't know what it is, but we have those difficulties, those challenges, those obstacles that we face. When we encounter those battles, one of the things we need to be aware of is that those battles often occur when we're comfortable. In fact, they can occur when we're at our most comfortable. The text said that the Israelites were attacked at a place called Rephidim. Now, Rephidim in the Hebrew means resting place. And scholars have, uh, for many, many years, tried to figure out where was this. Obviously, it was in the Sinai somewhere, but where exactly? And they think that it's at a place called Wadi Firah. Wadi Firah, which simply means uh, kind of an oasis type of thing. And uh, there's a slide here showing a little bit of what that's like. And you can see uh, for an oasis, it's pretty lush. In fact, there's a stretch of about two miles where it's just solid palm trees, which is very unusual to, to find in the middle of the desert. And so they've got this lush, this wonderful place that they've, they've found, and it's not hard to imagine. Life could be pretty good there. You could get pretty comfortable in a place like this, couldn't you? Sitting there with the palm branches, maybe even uh, waving yourself a little when it's warm. You're eating your manna. You're drinking in the water. Life seems to be so good. And then the darn Amalekites come along and they attack. And isn't that just the way the evil one works as well? We find ourselves in life, we finally got to that place where, where we're comfortable, where life seems to have settled down a little bit. And right when we reach that moment when things to, seem to be going well, uh, out of nowhere, apparently, or it seems like that, a zinger comes toward us. And sometimes that's the evil one doing his thing. And I don't know what that comfortable place is for you. Um, maybe it's uh, you've just uh, finished getting your house uh, right in the condition that you'd like it to be. You've got all the, uh, the work done, all the remodeling taking place. You can just sort of relax and enjoy that. Maybe for you, um, it's uh, you've uh, achieved a position in your workplace. Maybe you've got an advancement. Maybe you've got a, a managerial role that you've been working very hard for and so you can, can step back a little bit and not have to put in so many late nights. Maybe it's with the kids um, uh, finally getting into high school, which means you don't have to take them to all their different practices. They can drive themselves now and you have some extra time or maybe they're out of the house um, they've moved to college or other things and now you've got some time you forgot was ever there to begin with or maybe it's retirement I don't know what it might be for you but it's at those moments those moments when life seems to be comfortable at ease that we need to be what scripture tells us alert we need to be aware we need to be somewhat on guard in fact that's the very word that's used by Peter in 1 Peter 5 8 he says be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I love the imagery of this because I think it, it depicts fairly well um, the adversary that we face. Uh, the lion is a very stealthy, sneaky animal and yet a very fierce, aggressive uh, animal. And if we're not careful, it sneaks up on you. If you've ever seen any of the, uh, the Africa wildlife shows, you know just how they can do that. We need to be alert. Second thing that we see, and these are from the words of Jesus, we're told that we need to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit's willing, but the flesh, the flesh can be weak. And then from the words of Paul, similar idea, similar thought. We read in 1 Corinthians 16, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. So we hear it from Peter, we hear it from Jesus, we hear it from Paul, we can go to the Old Testament, see similar kinds of things. We need to be aware 
uh, that the evil one is out there and alert uh, to his wiles, to the uh, things that he wants to do, because he tries to find us at our most vulnerable. He's not a, a very um, fair fighter. And so he's going to pick those weak links in our lives, and he's going to find us at our vulnerable points. And he is indeed an individual who is determined, uh, an individual who will do whatever he has to in order to try to thwart our walk with our Savior. So what do we do then? Do we have to be hypervigilant all the time? Well, we really can't do that. Um, if you're hypervigilant all of the time, it is just exhausting. We need to be alert. We need to be aware, but we can't do it on our own. So we need to have individuals in our lives that can assist in that. We can have our backs at times when that's needed, who can um, sort of keep their eyes out for us. Maybe when we're in a season or a, a moment where things are a little bit difficult in our lives. And so we see that there are those, those situations where we need people to come and stand beside us who can be there to help us. In the case of, of Moses, that was Aaron and Hur who were there to stand and lift up the arms when they began to get tired. Which Moses really did the second thing I think we can learn from this story, and it's this. The battles need the help of genuine friends. When we find ourselves in a challenge or a difficulty, if we've got a good friend that's there with us, it seems to make it so much easier. In the case of Moses, once more, that was Aaron and that was her, but the same idea is conveyed elsewhere in Scripture. For example, we read in Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's a part of our responsibility as disciples. That's part of what God has charged us to do, is to stand beside one another and carry their burdens. And there's a flip side to that. When we're the ones who are in a weakened state, when we're the ones who are dragging, we need uh, to allow others to be those to us as well. Proverbs 17, 17 words it in this way. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. And it's not talking here about a biological brother. It's talking about a brother in the faith. We need those. We need people who can stand beside us, who can be our eyes and ears, or people who can, can uh, help us in those, those battles when they come along. And we need not just people who can stand there with us, but um, let me word it this way. While it's good to have individuals who can stand with us when we face battles, it's even better when those individuals are, are strong in some way. So let me give you an example of this. Imagine you're, you're getting ready to do battle, and you've got a choice of having two people. One of these two people you can have, they're on your side. You can have Pee Wee Herman, who interestingly just passed away this past week, or you can have Arnold Schwarzenegger. Most people would choose Arnold. If you're wanting to win the battle, Arnold seems to have uh, what's needed to accomplish that. Now, for the Israelites, they had gone uh, to war, and God sent the people out. He told Joshua, take a group and, and go do battle with the Amalekites. They had one another, and that was good. But it wasn't enough. Remember, when, when life was just kind of ordinary and the staff was down, what was happening? They were losing. It's only when Moses lifted his arms up that they were winning. It's only when Moses lifted his arms up that God was there present, standing beside working with them. And so as we think about these individuals in our lives, we need people, friends that can come alongside us, but who's the strongest of those? Well, it's the same one who was a source of strength for the Israelites then. It's God. And he will be there. Scripture tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. We just have to turn to him and trust in him to be there for us. 
So we have this battle, we have these individuals, these friends that have stood beside Moses. And then again, another interesting thing happened. After the victory of the battle, it says that Moses went and he found a rock and he wrote something on it. And he wrote these words, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Now, that's an interesting phrase for us um, because I think banners in our mindset uh, call a particular image. When we think of banners, we think of something like on the wall there. Or maybe when you see the cars driving during football season and the flags are, are whipping around and hooked up to the cars of your a particular favorite team. Or maybe you've got a banner in your house that's got a, a clever or philosophical saying on it or maybe a pretty picture. That's what we think of when we think of banners. But that's not what's being talked about here. Instead, he's talking about a specific banner that goes along with the, the name that we associate with this. There's a lot of different covenantal names that we have for God, and one of those is Jehovah Nissi, which means the Lord is my or the Lord is our banner. And it pulls to mind, not the banner like is over my shoulder here, but a banner that's military in nature. In fact, refers specifically to a military, what's called a military standard. And these are things that, that troops would take as they went out in front, sometimes in the back, but often in front of the, of, the, of the troops as they were getting ready to do battle. And they would have a symbol similar to this. Probably best known for their military standards were the Romans. And they would take uh, flags like this that would, would represent not only the regiment that they were part of, but it would also describe the fact that they were representing Rome. And in representing Rome, they were representing Caesar. And so there was great significance that went behind that. And what, what, what I think Moses or God was trying to teach through Moses here is that recognition that yes, God used the other people of Israel to help win this battle. I think had they not been there, probably things would not have worked out the way that they did. But, but they weren't really the source of the victory there. The source of the victory was God. The source of the victory was, was Jehovah Nissi. He was the one where the strength lied. And Moses wanted to make sure that they didn't forget that. A similar thought or idea is conveyed to us in a, a different book, the book of 1 Samuel, where, where we read this. 1 Samuel 17, 47 says, all of those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. So we need to look to God. So what have we learned? Well, a couple of things so far. I think we need to be mindful. The battles often occur when we're at our most comfortable. We need to be alert in those settings. We need to realize that battles need the help of genuine friends who will be there for us, who will stand beside us. And the strongest of those, well, is God himself. And then finally, we see that battles need proper posture. They need proper posture. Remember how when they were doing this battle against the Amalekites, kind of looked to Moses, staff up, they were winning, staff down, they were losing. And it's interesting that that particular image that, that comes to mind is really kind of a universal image if you think about it. You know, you could go to just about any country in the world, really about any time in their history. And if you think for just a moment, what, is this, what does this symbol represent? Well, it represents submission. It represents uh, acquiescing or yielding to somebody else. Well, we see this, for example, when we look at uh, pictures or if you've ever been in the military and, and been in combat circumstances. Oh, when the, the defeated foe comes out, their hands are raised. Or if you think of, of um, bank robbers who get caught robbing a bank and the police arrive in time and, and as the robbers come out, what do they do? They put their hand up in the air. It's a way of saying that, that I yield myself to your care. 
And I think that's what God wanted to convey here to the people of Israel, to remind them that we're called to yield ourselves to God and to his care. Because if you think of it, God could have used any kind of gesture to bring about what, what he was trying to demonstrate to the people here. He could have said, um, for, oh, too quick. He would have said um, that if you've got both feet on the ground, I'm, you're going to be winning. And if you stand on one foot, you're going to be losing. He could have used that as a gesture. He could have said, when your fingers are in your ears, you're winning. And when you take your fingers out of your ears, you're losing. He could have used any gesture at all, but he chose this gesture. Just coincidence? I don't think it is. I think that there was a lesson there that God was trying to convey. To convey for them and to convey for us as well. And yet, while I, I think this was what God was trying to, uh, to help them to realize, that the reality that, that this idea of submission has never been an easy sell for people. Um, as rather stubborn, stubborn self-centered, fallen people, uh, we kind of rebel against that. It was a hard sell for the people back in uh, Moses' time, and we know that. If you just go back one chapter, uh, in chapter 16, we read about this food that God provides. He provides uh, quail in the evening, we read. He provides water for them. But in the morning, he provided this, this special thing called manna. And he gave, when he gave the people manna, he said there's only two rules that go with manna. The first rule is you can only collect as much as you need for that particular day. You can't store it. You can't keep it overnight. It's not going to work. And what did the people of Israel do? They kept it, and they stored it overnight, and they went to open it up, and it was filled with maggots, and it stunk. Um, called to submit, couldn't quite do that. The second rule is that they were only to take enough to, uh, to get them by for a particular day on most days, but on the sixth day of the week, they were supposed to take twice as much because it was supposed to supply them on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath, another brand new concept that God introduced. But it was a day of, of holy rest for God's people. And he said, you need to collect twice as much on the sixth day because if you go out on the seventh day, there's not going to be any manna there. And what did the people of Israel do? And they decided not to quite collect as much as they needed to because they would just go out the next day and collect some more. But there was none there to find. And so we see as, as God's starting off in this relationship with, with his people, right off the bat, uh, we get this idea that the, the concept of submitting to God, to his teaching, to his ways, was not an easy thing for humanity to accept. It wasn't easy then, and I don't think it's easy for us today either. It seems to me that so, uh, for so many in our world today, that because we're so self-focused and, and, and concerned about our wants, our needs, that, that that's really the direction that our thoughts always go. We, we only want to be interested in what we believe to be true or what we believe to be tr just or what we believe uh, to be loving. And there's plenty out there that will support us in that, in that mindset. You can watch uh, talk show hosts and they'll have people on or you can uh, look to celebrities and they'll tell you that or you can turn to self-help gurus and they'll all say, yeah, it's all about you, it's all about you. But folks, just because someone else says it doesn't mean it's true. And it's most definitely not true in this case. Life is not about us insisting that we get what we want what we desire, what we crave, what we feel. Nor is it about insisting that others submit to what we want or what we feel or what we crave. Instead, as Christ followers, life is about 
submitting to God and his teachings and his truths and his example. That's what he's called us to do back in Moses' time. It's what he calls to do today. And throughout the entirety of, of history, it has been impo- it's been unpopular, but it's still what God calls us to be about. And when, as we think about this idea of submission, it's important that I pause for just a second to, to emphasize that, that the truth is that the idea of submission is more a, a matter of, of the mindset that we have than the, than the posture of our body. And that slide I went to too quickly before says this. The key is not the position of our body, but the condition of our heart. It's not about the position of our body, it's about the condition of our heart. You see, we can submit to God whether we're standing up or whether we're sitting down or whether we're laying on the ground or reclining on our side. It's not so much the body as it is the state of mind, the condition of our heart. Now, again, I think there was a reason God had him hold up the hands. I think there was something visible that went with that, but it's about what's taking inside more than what occurs outside. And as you think about this idea of of holding hands up, it's interesting, if you go through Scripture, you see that this this stance before God is really used primarily in, in one of two ways. The first one of those ways has to do with prayer. People lifting their hands as a, as a part, as an attitude of prayer. And so they worship God with hands outstretched or arms uplifted. And Scripture clearly tells us that's one of the ways that we can be about an attitude of prayer. In 2 Timothy 2.8, it says this, Therefore I want the men and women everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, in, in my life, I have to say that I haven't seen that quite as often as maybe the other things. And maybe it's the tradition I come out of. Um, uh, maybe it's just been my life experiences. But, but I don't see people praying often uh, in, in this sort of, of way. Um, I'm a, a Baptist in my roots, and we tend to be more reserved in terms of our, of our expression. Um, and so what I do see is I see people when they're praying, uh, you know, maybe they have their hands folded in front of them, or maybe the hands are down by their side, um, but I don't see it uplifted as much. And yet again, this is very obviously part of the way that we can worship God. There's a, another passage, the word of David in Psalm 28 that says, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. So as we think about the stance, this, this attitude, this, this uh, gesture, one of the ways that that's reflected is in seasons of prayer for some people. The other way that we see it, and at least it's been much more common in, in my life anyway, has been to see it in praise. When you're in a setting, you're in a, maybe it's a seminar, maybe it's a concert, whatever it might be, maybe it's a worship experience, and you just feel the Spirit working in a supernatural, powerful way. Maybe the, the worship team is really nailing it that day, or, or the Holy Spirit's just present in, in, in a unique fashion, but you find yourself drawn to, to just lifting your hands up in worship to God. In Psalm 63, verse 4, we read this, I will praise you for as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Now, again, for some people, this is very natural. Um, Part of the problem sitting in the front is I couldn't see what was happening during the worship time. And and so for maybe all of you that were behind me, maybe that's a part of of your worship style. Again, uh, that's not what I was raised with. I didn't become a Christian until I was in high school. I I became a Christ follower in a a Baptist church. And once more, we we tend to be more reserved. Um, 
But I remember as a, as a young Christian in high school and then going into college, going to some Christian concerts. And I would go there and I would see people lifting up their hands. And when I first thought, saw that, I thought, man, that is really odd. I didn't understand why people would do that. It just seemed to be a, a peculiar kind of, of, of gesture. But as I would go to the concerts and I would begin to sense the Holy Spirit working in my life, drawing me into a special place in, in adoring him and, and loving him in that setting, I began to feel a little bit of that too. Now, because I wasn't used to it, you know, I would start slow, start slow and low, sort of the way it would go. Because um, if you do this, no one can see you. It's safe. So I would start there and, and then I would kind of stop. Um, but as time went on and I saw more people doing this, I, I decided I wanted to experience what others were obviously experiencing in their worship and I was not. And I decided that for me, the best way to do that was to just stretch myself a little bit um, and to push myself into that. And so I, I started off with that sort of slow, slow kind of thing, just barely lifting the arms, like lifting a pile of wood, like lifting a pile of wood. And then I would move from that and I would be like lifting the baby, lifting the baby, going a little bit farther. <clears throat> and then there was a significant moment where I would move from hands facing me, facing outward as if I'm turning toward God, which is hopefully what was happening. It's like washing the windows, washing the windows. And then finally you'd get to that place, touch down Jesus. And you knew that you'd reach the moment of being able to worship like you'd want. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm joking about that a little bit, but just a little bit. I really do think that, that for us to engage fully in that attitude of worship that, that we sometimes, not all the time, but that we sometimes feel God leading us to, we have to push ourselves a little bit. We have to move out of that comfort zone in order to allow the worship of God fully to take place in our bodies. Again, we go back to that idea of submission, and that's what submitting to God is about. Not just in our minds, but in our full expression as well. So what is it that I'm hoping maybe we can take away from um, this lesson of the battle with the Amalekites? Well, first off, uh, the battles occur when we're comfortable. We need to be alert. We need to be on guard. Again, uh, the, Satan does not play uh, fairly. He doesn't use the kind of rules we would use. He's going to get us where we're vulnerable. He's going to get us when we're weak, and we need to be on guard about that. Second, the battles require us uh, to, to have the help of genuine friends. And we all know the difference between those who say they're friends and those who are real friends. We need to find those who can be real friends in our lives and those that we can be real friends to as well, realizing that the strongest of those friends, the strongest of those friends is our God. And then finally, we need the right posture. We need to be a people in submission to God. Submission uh, in all ways and shapes, maybe it involves arms lifted, but maybe it doesn't. What it does involve is that we uh, fully relinquish ourselves, fully yield, fully acquiesce over to God, to his will, to his word, and to his ways. Amen. If you allow me, let me just bow real quick and I'll wrap up in a prayer. Uh, Father, how we thank you for um, this time. How we thank you for uh, just an opportunity to share, Lord, uh, a little bit of what I think you would reveal to us through your word. Father, as we think about this idea of submission, I know we're going to be moving into a time of communion in just a moment, and, and we have the perfect example of submission in your son. Thank you for being a God who doesn't just talk about what we should do, but who models that uh, through the very things that you do through the very life of your son. God, thank you for your spirit's presence among us now, and help us to take what we've heard 
and use it to transform us into the men and women you would call us to be. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.